So I would say mobile banking is actually a lot more advanced in economies like Asian economies simply because of that phenomena. And there are some European countries, especially Eastern European countries, that also kind of made that leap, whereas a lot of Americans are still stuck to their laptops. Welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives hear incredible stories, and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to episode 45 of Humanizing Software, presented by Tailwind Business Ventures, where we invite a number of different global leaders to our conversation to have the discussion around this concept of humanizing software. Everybody's dealing with technology in so many different ways, both hardware and software. And in particular, software has so many different impacts on people's everyday lives that it sometimes seems to become something that might not be either appreciated, might be taken for granted, or might not understand the impact both positively and negatively relative to an individual human being's motivations, impact, or how it's important to them. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring a little bit more pertaining to these particular themes. We invite you to please engage with us dig digitally Ask questions in the chat during our live conversation, and even after it's uh, posted on YouTube and tw uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, we invite you to continue to digitally engage with our team. The website is tailwindsw.com. We've got 44 previous episodes that are on our own YouTube channel that we invite you to come and visit with us. Check those out and listen to folks like Heinrich Markarian, Anna Gibbs, Terry Kelly, and many others as they have expressed their viewpoint and thoughts on this topic of humanizing software. I'm exceptionally pleased to have someone that I've come to know and respect, not only with their business acumen, but also as a good friend. Bose Chan is going to be joining us shortly, um, and Bose is the head of strategic partnerships at MX. He has been at MX for just over a year to a year and a half, heads up product partnerships and DevX, including MX's strategic approach towards buying versus building and partnering decisions. He's responsible for the platforms and the journeys that both clients as well as developers leverage to onboard, implement, and build their applications. He has worked at Citi, where he has run the fintech and consumer digital business and led development integrations and operations for different financial data APIs that have powered thousands of different financial institutions and fintech applications. He has been with us and again is a source not only of great information and great perspective that I'm excited for him to share today. So please join me in welcoming Bose Chan to the conversation this morning. Bose, good morning. Thanks for joining. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I am well. Thank you so much for being on today's uh, livecast. I know we just had the opportunity to chat and I'm going to give you the disclaimer, recognizing that you're a little bit under the weather, that there might be an occasional cough or something and all okay. Just very, very glad and blessed to have you join us on today's live cast. So thanks for being here. Yeah. Well, it's an honor to be here. The last one for the year, hopefully a good finisher. I just wish I had the memo about 
that hat I would have joined and wore something red. <laughs> well, I figured it was something to take care of and do. Something that we start off with all of our live casts, Bose, is a very, very simple and straightforward question. And it allows our audience, both those that are listening in right now, as well as those that will listen in in weeks or months or years to come, to get to know a little bit about our guest. So Bose, please tell us the Bose Chan story in as much detail as you'd like. Sure. I'm based out of New York and I've been here around a decade and a half. And this is where we met too, right? Yeah, I think so. Yep. Um, so I, I currently work at MX. We are an open finance company. And what does this mean? We we enable our users to get their financial data. So we, we have the technology to power that. And we, we use that data to help customers enable digital experience to manage their finances. It could be account linking, it could be onboarding, it could be KYC, KYB, it could be getting a mortgage, it could be personal financial management and a whole lot of other use cases. So we are building networks with banks, one of which I was previously at. And, and through that process, we, we aim to provide financial freedom for end users. So currently my role is over developer experiences. And the other part of my role is strategic partnerships from a product angle, not necessarily go to market angle. And that's, that's kind of how we play. So very happy to be in product. That wasn't, that wasn't my childhood dream for sure. I mean, I really fell into it. How I knew about MX, I actually knew MX for a good four or five years right now. Before MX, I was working at Citibank. I was there for around seven, eight years. And in that, in that time, I had quite a few roles and kind of walked into the digital space prior to building uh, to MX, I was building open banking APIs for Citibank. At that point, the problems we were facing was multifold. End users couldn't get their data out of Citibank. They were using really poor means of getting data. Uh, there are older standards of, of getting your financial data. We, we needed to build an open API. So this was like back in like 2015, 16 ish when, and I think that was like post open source, uh, like fan base kind of period. And a lot of, there was a lot of calls to say, well, banks should be opening up their data and screen scraping was not a great solution. So how can you make it better? So from a cost optimization standpoint, the bank, Citibank wanted to provide open banking APIs, but no one knew what that meant. There were no standards. There were no good way, like what it should go, what data should go into API, what use cases does it power? So we kind of start from there, uh, from a business case standpoint, and we had to build relationships because building an open API doesn't mean anyone's going to use it. So that's kind of how I fell into the world of partnerships and extended it over to MX. And I, I did the same about today, my competitors in, in the past, my partners, and they're still in the industry today. So it's a pretty niche space, very interesting because you needed really in-depth knowledge, not only of the technology stacks that the banks has, I like to call banks like Pac-Man, they just eat up different banks and all the legacy systems remain. Like, so you had to find a way to orchestrate all of them. So you need to know the business behind the bank. You need to know the technology behind the bank. You need to know the use cases that fintechs are trying to, to enable for their users. And that's why they're getting data. It's a very intellectually challenging exercise in the space. And you have to know digital interfaces really well. So, and the onboarding journeys, if you consider how a user onboards themselves into a bank and, and the functions that they require. Now, 
it's not a one-for-one -one relationship between fintechs and, and banking interfaces. So that, that in itself was interesting. But prior to that, at prior to open banking and prior to digital, I was what I would call an in-house consultant at the bank. So I, I was two down from the couple of the CEOs that we have within the bank. So retail banking and credit cards, and we're doing this internationally. So I really saw what it takes to run a bank. And when I mean bank, I mean like from a consumer standpoint, and that was kind of a culture shock for me because number one, I'm not from the U S so that was one, like how people do finances here in the U S is very different from Asia. We can, can talk about humans on that level too. I think it's an important cultural context. Uh, that was because I grew up with Citibank in Singapore, which is very, very different. And just going through what goes into finances, how CEOs make this decisions, how they, they drive their business and how different it is between the, the branded credit card side and the retail banking side. That was also very different. Every quarterly, they then have to talk about their quarterly earnings and what they had to go through for the town hall. So that's kind of my origin story in, in consumer banking. Prior to that, I was educated more in the space of the institutional side. So I did a little bit of corporate banking slash investment banking. I did asset management. I also touched divorce financing. If you really want to get into that, we can talk a little bit about that. But it, it is mind blowing. So and I came to the US to study finance. Really, it was driven because my family went through the financial crisis in Asia. It's something most Americans don't know about, but there are financial crises that affects on a global level, but there's some that's more localized and regionalized. So I kind of went through that, wanted to know what happened to my family. So I went into finance. So my mom was, was approved it because she thinks you'll earn a lot of money, but that's not necessarily true. So uh, as I've learned. And yeah, that, that's kind of my origin story and how I did that. But really my first job was, I mean, aside from working in a restaurant, I, I did the military for two years. So kind of lived a different life before coming to the U S for business school. So that's really how you would see the sequential, um, timeline of, of my life. So we're going to dive deep on a number of those areas and I'm very well going to probably come back to divorce financing. Sure. Never heard of it. Might need to understand that a little bit more, but before we go into that, because there's open banking, there's the APIs that you talked about, there's the digital experience, all the things that are something that I want to touch on today. But the thing that I also want to really highlight, and it's talking about your origin story, you are not originally from the States, came over from Asia. I know you spent quite a bit of time in Singapore. Let's talk about those early years. Where were you born? And talk a little bit about your family life and how it's impact, because that piece on the financial crisis, which, I mean, obviously there's quite a bit of concern currently at the end of 2022 about what's happening, not only with the marketplaces, but with inflation and a number of macroeconomic pressures. So we're currently in an inflection point right now. Don't want to talk about the present. Would really like to understand a little bit more about those as early on past your family life. And uh, let, let's talk about that influence of being from Asia and what that had to, um, in terms of your career shaping. So my mom's from Singapore and I, was, I grew up and was born in Singapore, but my dad's from Hong Kong. And if you know anything about people in Hong Kong, they, I mean, it's ex-British colonials, Singapore too, but I think they were affected quite differently. And my dad came from a, like, he grew up very poor. So the moment they had money, they just like blew money. Like they had no concept of spending. It was a bull run for them. Like my dad was educated. Uh, he actually went to Montreal for university. And back then, anyone going to university was like a big deal. Like that's not the case right now. So I had to put that in a context as well. And that was like 60s or 70s, right? So 
he he grew up as a businessman. He had family businesses, was mainly driven by my uncle, and he was in a textiles industries. So he was telling me as a kid something along the lines where a bale of cloth would cost three dollars, but he sold it to a hundred at a hundred dollars. Like how many thousands of margins is that? And he sold it to America. So if you think about back then, like Asia was a manufacturing and it still is to a certain degree with China involved. But back then China was like in a very different place too. So everywhere else around in, in those regions in Asia was just producing cloth. And they might be like built here and then sold to Banana Republic and Mango. And, and back then that was like pre pre-financial depression or the recession at that point. And I guess like you know, you would think someone who's rich don't necessarily have great financial literacy. He thought things would go well and he was buying houses. He bought one house, he he pulled out the equity and he bought another house with it. And then he did the same thing and he flipped over houses. Now in a bull run in a, con a good economy, sure, all the prices just keep going up and you can just keep leveraging and over leveraging because I would say because of lack of good technology back then and especially if you look in Asia, there isn't such a thing as a credit bureau. So one bank doesn't necessarily know that you borrow for another bank. I mean, obviously today is a little bit different, but back sure. then, right? You just keep borrowing and they say, I have a house and that's my collateral. And I have another house and it's my collateral. Crisis hit that all the banks are then saying, I want my money back. So that that's number one thing that happened. He was gambling as well. If you don't know anyone from Hong Kong, they love horse racing. Like it's a thing. So that was that. And I think... There was the business side. The business wasn't doing well. America didn't want like expensive clothes anymore because he was selling to that market. So the combination of pressures just like imploded. And he never imagined himself to go back to when he was a child, that level of poverty, but even despite the fact that he had kids. So this like domino effect just like destroyed his life and destroyed therefore my family's life because my mom didn't have expectations that this would happen. She saw him as like someone who was from a financial standpoint, not only a stable one, but more, more knowledgeable, right? You would think. And if I were her, I would think the same way. So, so all of that happened and kind of drove me in the direction of like, I was, I didn't understand why there was strife in my family. It kind of, I think it harks to the point. And that's kind of one of the things that attracted me to MX as well, which is bad finances is but one reason, but a really strong re reason of driving stress within the family, instability within the household, instability in society. I'm not saying it's a one-all be-all, like finances solve your problems, but not understanding the risk that you're going into is a problem I think most Americans face. And they don't even teach this stuff in school, which drives me crazy. I mean, even someone who studied finance. So one of the problems with business schools across the world, but I think all the more pertinent in say New York or Warren, NYU and Warren, those are the two like big finance schools, is they teach you about institutional finance, debt instruments. These are things for millionaires and companies. How about how a credit card network works? No one teaches you that in school. I only found out that I thought I had a business degree and that was good enough. Went into the bank and found out I knew nothing about consumer finance. So I, I, I do wish, uh, obviously I have no claim or stake in, in education within the US, but if I had children, I would teach them why there is a risk of getting credit card debt. Why does a 20% APR in a lot of these and how do credit card companies actually earn money? Why there are so many credit card companies are also banks, because then you have deposits on one side and you can start lending money. Like, like this simple understanding of how this cyclical nature of how money works should be something that 
most people understand. So they understand the risks. At least that's what I, I feel that everyone should know. It's like, why should you know basic chemistry? I would argue that you should know basic financial management as well. And the tools that MX provides at least take some of that stress away or at least use data in a way that will give you an insight into your own management. So thank you for sharing a number of those pieces, Bose, because I know people, everybody has their own story. Everybody's family story of origin is quite impactful in terms of who they either want to be, how they're defined, or what decisions that they make. Obviously, early on, you wanting to specifically go into finance because of the lessons learned uh, from early on in your life. And it, we've, we've had this conversation, most everybody, uh, especially on the podcast, I bring up my three kiddos on a regular basis. That now that my wife, Megan, and I are uh, empty nesters, and we've gone through the conversations of the life skills around uh, finances. And, and it's one of those that you can talk about and teach. But until you actually experience, until you actually understand that you've got a late payment, you've overdrawn your account, you're not able to get a loan, you're getting charged extra money when you have no money, those everyday real life experiences, it's important, it's real, and it's significant. And being able to have those conversations and even have those conversations uh, multi-generational where your parents might not understand them. Your kids might not understand them. And there's different levels of life experience that are involved in that. It's important to that. Something that you've mentioned a number of times, and I know MX is, is very, very big on this, not only from an open finance, but also all things data related. And this dovetails directly into the humanizing software side of why we're having this conversation. Software is designed, as everybody listening into this, I'm sure knows, and those you and I have had this conversation, it's designed to do what it's built to do and can only go so far. And we'll have a conversation about chat GPT um, as well, about its uh, new impact on the AI side of things. But software, the zeros and ones that are built usually have a specific purpose that they're gonna automate, regulate, capture, track, manage, do some sort of tasking for that. The biggest challenge comes into play when you have so much data, you have so many different people who are inputting the data, who are looking at the data, who might have some sort of impact relative to the data. Our big question that we like to ask is, how do we keep the human being as part of that equation with the software to not make it just be an automated task that's just adding one plus one and getting two on a repeated basis? But how do we keep the humanization side of that in? You guys are in the data space. I'd love to get your take and whether it's the Bose take or the MX take on how do we put the humans back in the software equation? I find that there is this tension between having robots or, or software in, in the flow and therefore it, it dehumanizes the experience. And that's something I don't quite understand because it's like saying, if I give a screwdriver to a person, therefore it's a less human experience. I mean, it's, you know what I'm saying? Like it's how you design the tool and its purpose. A software is just less tangible, I would say, relative to a screwdriver, but all it does, it's supposed to make the human experience easier or more efficient and safer. And if it wasn't designed with those principles in mind, then 
it's a bad tool. Like it's a badly designed tool. Because all software is mostly made by human beings. Obviously, again, software making software. Uh, but I guess the point is like, how is it meant? How is it designed? So the design thinking process that goes into building that software and what that software is built for, it's what matters. So I'll start from the design. And I mean, I don't want to bring politics too much into this, but I would say that if you build software meant to serve well your entire customer population, that's not designed the best intentions in mind, right? Like depending on your societal values and whatnot. So uh, what's the ultimate desire of the creator of that software is important. So if, if you design software that's meant to aid the human experience, I would think well-designed software would enable you, the end user of that set software, or whoever gets impacted by that, to have a more experience, a more human experience with the creator or the executor of that software. I would always go back to what are you trying to design? What is the pain point you're trying to solve? I mean, I think about it from a product standpoint, so you have to excuse me from that, that perspective, right? So like, it's all about design. It's all about intent. You can use the knife to cut meat or you can use the knife to kill people. It's all about what you choose to use to do with it. And if the software that you are dealing with has a clear intent or was designed for malicious purposes, then it's less humanizing, right? So I think we all, I think that's what they should teach in school. It's like, why are you building this tool? How are you building this tool? Are you doing enough user testing to ensure that this tool wouldn't hurt more people, but would save more people their time and resources and energy? So you bring up, and I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of the statement where you hand somebody a screwdriver. It's a tool and it's meant to accomplish a task. If you hand somebody a screwdriver when they're trying to replace batteries or they're trying to replace something that has an actual screw that needs to be unscrewed, that's very effective. And it's a great tool to use for that specific task. However, if your job is to take down or demo a uh, demolition, uh, a wall, that screwdriver isn't going to be nearly as effective of a tool. Can it get the job done? Eh, perhaps, <laughs> but are there much better tools to utilize to actually get the task done in place? There certainly are. And yeah. going back to your comment about design and understanding what the pain point is or what the actual purpose is, software by its very nature needs to have not only specific a specific purpose in mind, but be able to extend or expand or modify based off of what its core purpose is to all different types of niche cases. So the screwdriver, again, going back to that, can it be used to unscrew something for batteries? Yes. Can it also be used as a lever? Can it be used to as a wedge? Can it be used to do a variety of different types of tools? Absolutely. Might have one initial purpose, but there's a lot of other sub purposes that come into play on so many different fronts. And part of that is on the design side of the equation. It's asking the question of what is it that you want to do with this particular tool or software or component with that? Yeah. You mentioned at City that you did quite a bit on the personalization and on various different application experiences to back in 2015 and 2016, you had said earlier on that it was painful screen scraping, other different types of technologies, the way that people gathered data, the way that it interacted. It had come so far, but it still had so far to go. 
I would welcome your comments and thoughts, whether it's specific to city, whether it's based off of city with Mal MX, where have you seen the ongoing modification, the growth of this digital customer journey uh, modify over the last five, 10 years or so? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> but, but let me, when you talk about software is one thing, but when you talk, I mean, it's the same story about finance, really. I was told very, very early. So I was studying finance and accounting and I had a minor, which if I took two more classes, I would have a major in philosophy. And someone said, oh, why do you, that's a, such a weird combination. I'm like, why do you use the word, the word weird? I said, but they're, they're so conflicting. I'm like, sorry, what about finance and philosophy is conflicting? I'm like, like, one's an evil subject and one's like a good subject. I'm like, where did that come from? So there is like inherent, inherent beliefs about studying a particular subject, therefore leads to world domination versus one that is uh, saving the world. Like, so, it's, you know, I think society constantly needs to understand software, finance, like disciplines, design. These are all tools. They don't have an inherent moral or virtuous characteristic assigned to it. So I do want to address like one of your first points earlier and with respect to screen scraping, which is one of those topics that, you know, this is something new I've learned as well. Again, screen scraping is just how it's designed and what it is meant to do is a problem. So just, just for those who don't understand what screen scraping is, screen scraping are basically small robots that crawl your website as gnarly as it sounds, but it basically takes your, it acts like a human being and it, it performs certain tasks. So it acts like a human being. It takes your, your account credentials and it logs in on your behalf and gets the data that you're looking for so that you don't have to log into the bank account yourself to get the data that you're looking for. That data, which is required for you to do what you want to do. It could be financial management. It, be, it could be accounting. It could be opening up a new bank account. It could be moving money. So it's, it's a combination of, of functions. The problem is websites are not designed for that level of screen scraping load. What most people don't understand, the most websites that you go to uh, have already been screen scraped by Google and Microsoft. Most of the internets, the web's activity are robots. They are not actually a small percentage are actually human-driven activity. They are robots telling other robots you to see what this website looks like. So now if you look at Google search, it's basically all of that is to, it's not exactly screen scrape. They're like different kinds of bots, but effectively it performs the same ideological function, which is little robots that go to other websites, take information and put it on my website instead so that my application can work on your application. But you see this domino effect of like, well, now like my application depends on your application, but I'm the one earning money and you're not, you're the one not earning money. We, we see that with Facebook as a platform trying to take publications then like as a journalist who's working for that publication are you getting the credit and are you earning the income for the work you did to provide that kind of data i can extend the same argument for banks banks generate data based on your spending history they spend a lot of money to to protect your data now you have a screen scraper coming to the door knocking your door and saying i'm acting on behalf of the user but and acting as a platform. But then the question is, are you actually equipped, number one, to support that kind of activity? Number two, 
you think about the economic value chain, is it a fair distribution of resources across the stakeholders in the entire ecosystem? It's a very difficult question to answer. Like how much should the bank be compensated to support screen scraping? And then instead of screen scraping, if you replace screen scraping, which is a tool with a better tool, i.e. open banking APIs, do you expect the bank to then charge downstream for APIs? I mean, someone got to pay my paycheck to build those APIs. The systems needs to be built to support APIs too. And I mentioned earlier about Pac-Man, an API, if it's built off of an orchestration layer, that orchestration layer still needs to hit 10 different backend systems that Citibank has acquired over the years. And this is not just a problem associated with Citibank. So you know, I don't have all the answers, but at least I have a better insight of the problems that banks face. And I understand that users don't care about all this stuff. Like somehow you guys got to solve it. They expect the regulators to solve it. They expect the banks to solve it. And I think fintechs and banks just need to come together and understand the word of compromise and, and balance. That's really what, what, you know, I think what's required in our society. So compromise and balance, uh, completely agree. We've had several conversations about that in some of our previous uh, live casts and this balance between whether it's security and usability or whatever the weighted scales might look like. I want to use the magical time machine here for a second and, and go from current experience at MX to previous experience at City. And not because it's MX and City, but just there's been quite a bit of macroeconomic changes. There's been a lot of major global events, COVID being, of course, a, a great example. And there's been significant technology advances, everything from AI, artificial intelligence to machine learning and manifestation recently with the Lenza app and the chat GPT capabilities um, of this artificial intelligence that um, I can now get through college by answering short form questions by utilizing chat GPT. New, exciting, big ramifications, potentially dangerous. If we took a snapshot technologically of where you see things happening as it pertains to digital banking in 2022 versus where digital banking was in 2016 or 2012, 10 years ago, what would be some of the most stark differences um, and whether good or bad that you're seeing in the industry, whether it's data related, technology related or anything related to those? I think the concept of breakthroughs in technology in finance is a fallacy. It's slow. I mean, you and I and in, the, in this industry, no matter what kind of technologies come up, it's small incremental improvements over time. You don't have mobile banking suddenly exploding and therefore taking over the world. Like there is still branches that exist. There are still online banking, like and more and more there's majority traffic on, on mobile banking. But it, no technology I have seen revolutionizes and AI is no different unless it goes crazy. I, then that's something beyond my understanding. But I actually think these are all small lead bullets that makes an experience better and competition in the market actually creates that. So 2016 and 2022 today, the main difference is from a user experience standpoint, it'd be more and more like fintechs that's what fintechs only concentrate on and banks are looking at that and saying hey we had to like buck up we have to compete with them that is my understanding of at least how i see the market when it comes to ai and things like that 
So there'll be small incremental improvements to make, well, actually we're, we're saying like software seem more human, less cluttered, less clunky, safer, uh, especially with the coming, I won't say like actual recession, but concerns about the economy at this point, users in times like that always go back to basics. Do I have enough money to tide over of the next few months? I, I use my, my dad's uh, economic situation. If we can prevent things like that during a downturn and at least mitigate the risks associated with, with people losing money and, and exposing themselves to risks, that's where I hope all these AIs would say, hey, by the way, because we have all this data from all your bank accounts, you are like 90% chance of actually being in a bad situation. These are your options right now. So if I can see AI just push, it might save like 10% of people, but that's a huge improvement already. And that's what I've been seeing in an industry. I mean, MX does power some of those applications and the fintechs that are coming up are, you know, they are trying to, to nibble away at small problems like that. Like fintechs are the same thing. Like fintechs, there's not one fintech that really came in and I like, transform everything right like it's a it's, a, it's many small fintechs and what, what i've seen that's encouraging is younger people are just more receptive to new technology you can say that they're, they're more they're less risk adverse but that's driving a lot of money in that direction and then more people are getting exposure to new kinds of technologies and the idea that yeah i can build this myself you know internet wasn't wasn't that exposed 30 years ago so the skills available just to anyone, even without a college degree, and now you can start building your own thing. That that's pretty encouraging. And they start young, right? They start with playing Roblox, and and having that level of access is, I think, is very encouraging for society as a whole. So several comments that you brought up that I think that are of particular interest there, and especially going back to this data piece. And before I get to the data, because I want to have a conversation on privacy versus security, uh, something that seems to be um, very near and dear to a lot of our listeners' uh, hearts and people that are uh, part of uh, the humanizing software ecosystem. Before I get into the data conversation, I want to talk about a comment that you had, online banking versus mobile banking. Many would argue that the Venn diagram crossover between those is a lot closer than it may be. I'm curious to get your take. Let's define online banking and let's define mobile banking from a customer experiential perspective. What are your thoughts on that, Bose? It's easy to say that it's a matter of a different platform. And this is where I bring Asia into the context that like in the US, there are a lot of people with laptops. In Asia, most of them did not even own a computer and went straight to a mobile phone. So I would say mobile banking is actually a lot more advanced in economies like Asian economies, simply because of that phenomena. And there are some European countries, especially Eastern European countries that also kind of made that leap. Whereas a lot of Americans are still stuck to their laptops, which is interesting. So that's like the mode of consumption and the way they think about engaging an interface is actually very different. One, you have a mouse and one, you use your fingers and touch that dramatically changes the experience but at the core fundamental service level i don't think there's a huge difference between mobile banking and and online banking there is a perceived increased security of making a transaction happen on transaction uh, on online banking but i think that's moving away right now because uh one would argue that at least on a phone level you actually do have enhanced security just because of the way that android and iOS is built. So I think slowly and slowly more people do trust mobile phones. And if they don't trust their money there and well, then I, I don't really see an incremental benefit using the computer. 
Interesting. So what I'm hearing is the, the form factor is predominantly the difference. Online banking, I'm going to my laptop, I'm using my Chrome browser or Firefox or other browser to log into my financial institution's account versus on my iPhone, my Android phone, facial recognition or whatever. I'm touch, 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 tap, tap, tapping versus type, 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 typing from an online versus or mobile versus online perspective experience. Is yeah, that yeah. I mean, that's an easy way to label this. Mm -hmm. But I would also argue that your interaction is very different because if you're if you have a phone, you can receive a text message immediately. And then when you're on your computer, you cannot. Right. And then your computer, how what which computer today uh, desktop actually has facial recognition. So I actually see a connectivity too. Like sometimes when you're logging into your browser, it asks, it sends you a phone, phone message that says, do something. But now your phone itself is a token. So it actually has an increased level of security, at least relative, relative to the, to the computer. So I think more and more people are trusting their phones, right? And that was, that's in the U S but it, in Asia, people actually use their phone first. So if they're willing to use their phone for literally everything they want to do in their lives, banking is is not an exception at all for them. I want to come back to that because we I mentioned at the beginning of the live cast about your experiences of Asia uh, finance and banking versus that experience that the U.S. banking and finance because it is radically different in a number of different cases. But before I go there, it's it's interesting because I just uh, had my own personal experience of online versus mobile versus old school banking, and it's kind of a unique thing. My six month auto insurance premium is coming up. And I'm not going to name of the company um, because it was very unusual. This is an excellent, excellent company with very, very high net promoter score about doing things the right way. Tried to take care of it over the weekend. The application logged in, click, click, click. It's usually, you know, click, 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 and you're done. Oh, click, click, stop. Oh, we've got an error. That's weird. Click, click, error. Wait a minute. Let me go back out. All right. Am I something wrong here? Still click, click, error. All right. I'll try it later. That was Sunday. Yesterday, Monday. Did the same thing. I'm like, this is unusual. I'm going to go and log in via my laptop and see what's going on. Same type of experience. And it was getting frustrating at this point because I couldn't even schedule it to get paid. I was going, why is, I want to pay you. I need to pay a bill. I want to pay you. And you're making it difficult for me to make this transaction happen. This is, I've come to expect the easy button. Click, click, I'm done. Great. Moving on to the next task. When I'm thwarted with that, both with my phone and my browser, I'm like, well, wait a minute. All right. If this is going to be what it needs to be, I'm going to go ahead and go old school. I called them, used the automated system and actually went through. And this is the first time, Bose, and I don't remember how long, probably 10 or 15, maybe longer years. I paid a bill via phone yesterday because the other modalities didn't work and I didn't want to think about it anymore. I just wanted it done. And it was yeah. interesting to me, thinking back just from this experience, that I've come to accept the fact that this device is infinitely easier to log in, click, tap, boom, done. When that doesn't happen, I get frustrated, as many people do, because the experience isn't what the experience is supposed to be. And so, do you, do you tell them your credit card number over the phone? No, actually, it was able to pay the amount. It's already linked. The interesting okay. thing is it's already, uh, I haven't had, I've been with them since 1991. So it's not like we have a new relationship here. And it's been linked to my uh, checking account for the longest time. It was just something was weird and not working. 
don't know, not sure, but it took me extra steps. And is there some level of frustration with this particular institution because of it? Absolutely it is. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything or do anything because ultimately I'm satisfied that it was done, but the methodology behind me getting satisfied with having to take a lot more time than what I'd come to expect to make this happen kind of makes me think, well, what, what, what's going on? Something about they've changed something that it's not as easy. So my software experience isn't as good. I'm irritated. And what have they done to have done that? Because I don't think that this one's on me. I tried the same thing that I always have, but it's not working this time. So it's, it's just an interesting dichotomy there of, again, everybody expects now with mobile technology, it's log in, click, you're done. Well, in some cases, that's not the case. And I'm curious, because this dovetails into the conversation that I'd love to have with you, banking and just doing normal course of life activities in Asia is dramatically different in so many different ways than it is here in the United States. As it pertains to the experience of humanization, what is what are some of the goods and bads of what you've seen currently is happening throughout Asia that we're not there yet in the United States? I wouldn't quite put it that way of you're not quite there yet. The two, like there are a few driving factors. So for example, in your case, it's probably been an insurance company for many, many years. They have legacy problems, infrastructure, but they have legacy customers. And I'm, I'm not alluding to your age. I'm just saying <laughs> they have a certain way of population that come to expect that calling them in is a normal course of action. So how much do they actually invest in their digital interfaces and technologies? and keep it current. So it's very much a function of your business model. What kind of demographic are you trying to go for? If you're trying to go for a younger demographic that is used to a way of life, like operating their course of life through a mobile phone, then where your investment dollars go, do you need an omni-channel solution to service your customers, or you just need a digital mobile version, or you need online and you need branches. So depending on who you're going after, and our society still has all of that. And depending on your business, how you want to attack that is very much a function of how your business runs. On top of that, there's regulatory slowness as well. There are regulatory gray areas. And at the bank, we face this all the time. Like it's sort of like, for example, with screen scraping, there is an argument that, well, the customer chose to give their credentials to someone. So if their money disappears tomorrow because of that, it's not my fault. The customer broke that terms and conditions. But I'm like, well, you kind of let that bot, you know, it's a bot. It went through your systems and it took data and that enabled something that fraud, fraudulent that happened. Has this been tested in court of law? N not really. I mean, we, we've known that to happen. And sometimes the banks are just saying, if the credit losses are low enough, I, I just want to make this go away. And then that's not going to court. But is, is this prevalent through, throughout the industry? Yes. But, you know, they have that in their credit models. And it's an acceptable level of loss. But as times goes by, consumer expectations grow, regulation changes that dynamic, and banks are just businesses and they need to respond. In Asia, if everyone is using a phone and it doesn't work, and the fact that I have to call in is a serious, serious problem. But one other thing to note, very, very different from here in the US, a lot of governments in Asia play the role of the identity provider. So the fact that you are and that's not happening here. Here is like Facebook, a private company or Google. And a lot of the, the banking laws in Singapore, like the bank, the 
the government has access to your financial accounts. So if the government already has access to your financial accounts, why don't you just work directly with the government so you can provide a service directly? So they play a different role there as a technology and identity provider. And you see that very commonly across, including India and Singapore and Hong Kong. Because of that centralization of identity, it actually does enable the proliferation, I would say, of super apps. So if you think of like, if you think of Uber in the US, most people use it for Uber Eats and maybe for for Uber, like as, as, as a taxi service. In Asia, it's a wallet. You use that and you pay using your Uber. I mean, in Singapore, Uber was kicked out actually by a local competitor who is called Grab. And Grab is very big actually in Asia. They're big in Indonesia and, and Singapore, where they actually drove out the international player because from the international player perspective, their mindset was really around like taxiing services. But the local competitor worked with local companies, local taxi drivers, and also offered the consumers to actually drive down cars and become drivers, and then created a wallet. And with that wallet, you can actually have a an experience where you get like cashbacks, you get credit, and you can use that to buy like movie tickets. And is that integrated with what the government requirements are from an identity standpoint? Very much so, yes. So the proliferation of these kind of applications that encompasses a human being's life or a user's life is very much available there because I guess people are just more used to the idea of trusting their government with information like that. Can you see that happening here in the US? Absolutely not. I mean, the state licenses alone is a nightmare. I mean, I, I, I'm very proud of this fact, but my driving licenses does not have an expiration date. I don't understand why you need to go to the DMV every five years and, and, and actually renew. You are still the same human being, right? So there, there are fundamental problems that it's not unsolvable in the US, but I think the way and the kind of uh, the way that they approach identity, the way they approach identification. I mean, if you see how that interacts with voting and, and race here in the US, it, it's a very, very complicated topic here. So it's just different ways of, I think, society, how society values certain things that influences regulation, that influences consumers' ways of like consuming, right? So I could make the easy argument, especially post-COVID, that I've seen a number of drivers that I think need to go to the DMV on a monthly or annual basis, just from a competency perspective. But that's a separate conversation for a separate right. time. Yeah. But you bring up an excellent, excellent topic and from a global geopolitical perspective with it is an expectation in Singapore that, by the way, the government has access to my financial records. You say that to somebody in the state of Texas or in the United States in general, and you're going to be negative. No, that's not going to happen. We have privacy. We have safety. We have security. This is my right to have my own type of, and there's a whole bunch of different things that are part and parcel of that. And it speaks to the topic, the last topic that I want to cover in today's conversation. I mean, I've alluded to it a couple of times. There's this concept of privacy, safety, security. My data is my data. I own it. I want to be able to maintain it, manage it, et cetera. On the flip side of that, you have usability. You have the easy button. You have the I don't care who has this. And a great example of this, of course, is the current TikTok debate of do we ban TikTok in the United States because it's owned by ByteDance and it has access to the Chinese government. And the Chinese government has already been tracked by Reuters of ByteDance has tracked at least a couple of folks by location based off of TikToks uh, or that have been posted or, or, or seen. 
huge, huge ramifications that yet haven't been manifested in and of itself, but it's a current conversation. What is your take on the privacy versus safety and security side of the equation, Bose? Before I go to ByteDance, I'll share with you a story. So I was trying to build the API at City, and I said, well, this data is going out the bank, it's going to somewhere, right? We don't know where that somewhere is. We, we might sign in. At first, I was saying, why do we even have to sign a contract with anyone, including MX? The user gave like basically told authorized city to send their data somewhere and where that data goes why is it city bank's responsibility but obviously the OCC and the CFPB sees things differently I'll put that aside uh, and I brought this to the chief privacy officer and he's not a technology person he's no longer there so it's some time ago and he basically said well both like can you can you put some kind of code to track where that data go and like wait do you just say like you want me to put a trojan in the data output so we can track where that data goes without the customers knowing so yeah yeah we we should track where that data goes and then then we can tell the user that your data is flying some i'm like you, you know that's a trojan right like you know and it took a while for for him to like oh yeah that's that's not a good idea but i i think it harks to the point that there is good intent like the, the desire is not a to track where your data goes so I can have my fingers in every pie. It's more of like there's an antenna saying, hey, user, your data is flying elsewhere. Like you should know where your data is going. And I kind of understand that point. But then the flip side is it's a Trojan. Like you, you as a user did not give permission for that to happen. And there are ways of saying that there needs to be balance. And there are ways that, you know, there's some things that you absolutely shouldn't do like a Trojan. So just a small story about that. So about privacy, very complicated topic. I mean, you see what GDPR is doing and then you see what CCPA in the US is doing. Your data belongs to you. Yes. The problem is defining what data is truly yours. So for example, your bank account number is issued to you by Citibank or any bank. Is that your data or is that the bank's data that they are providing to you in relation to the specific service that intended to provide to you according to the terms and conditions. Like, how do you actually say it's your data when it really isn't? And the banks are then getting, like if something happens to your bank account, they are on the hook for it. So there is a problem there in, you know, I'm taking a basic economic term about externalities. Like if something happened to you and the banks are responsible, but it's because of your activity, what cost do you as a consumer actually bear given the risk? The ongoing assumption that most people have in society is consumers are not very smart. So you, the bank, should know better and therefore protect them from it. I don't quite agree with that, but you can see why people think that way too. Because consumers do do things that they don't intend to do. They don't are not fully aware of the risks. And they make the bank, therefore, pay for it. So the banks are therefore interested in protecting you. Now, when it comes to governments, you make the same assumptions about them too. So I don't. there are some governments... China in particular, let's talk about TikTok. Okay, so it's a big topic, but I often hear Americans telling me, oh, the TikTok in China is so different from the US. I was like, yes, it's a huge difference because in the US, they're saying, well, TikTok corrupts young people's lives because they, what gets the most attention is people eating Tide Pods, for example. And it's like all this dumb, uneducated social media that gets all this attention. And I'm saying, yes, it's true. I mean, that's happening because 
if you look at it from an algorithmic standpoint, there's very, very little intervention. Like dumb things get a lot of attention. When you drive on the highway and there's an accident, do you really need to watch it? But no, it slows the entire traffic down. But it's not it's not like someone is like taking care of something. People just like our nat human nature is that. So I think the TikTok in the US is exemplary of what humans really are to some degree. I'm being a bit pessimistic here. But negative things or really dumb things get a lot of attention in the US. Now, it's not like humans in China are different. What's different in TikTok in Asia is the hand of the government is extremely strong. They play down algorithmically. They actually have a strong intervention of like dumb things should not be shown to the public. Only good things to, should be educational stuff, things that drives patriotism, so and so forth. But I'm like, now I ask you as an American, what, what algo would you rather have? One that has the government's hand in literally everything and that has a great firewall of China that basically says you cannot type the word Taiwan, for example, in it. Mm -hmm. Or do you want the TikTok that <laughs> that basically has the highest views for eating Tide Pods? So I wish I have a great answer for this, but I think people should ask the question and not be so quick to jump to conclusions saying, well, their algorithm in China was designed to help young people get smarter, but that algorithm in the US is here designed to make Americans, American kids waste resources on dumb things. That's not necessarily true because they need to look at the other side where, hey, you actually want to lose your freedom, the ability to say anything you want to. And you look at all this Twitter walls, Twitter wars that's happening right now. Like what kind of society do you prefer to live in? So there are pros and cons, I think, to both sides. And one should appreciate that uh, in its entirety. So, so much. And I know this is our wrap up spot and we could go on. This is an opening for a, I think it's going to be a future live cast for specifically and only on this safety, security, privacy component, because there are so many different ways to think about this, to explore this from a freedom of rights of speech, a suppression perspective of what, what people have the right to do or say or not do. And, oh man, I wish I'd actually covered this off like 20 or 30 minutes ago in our live cast, because man, we could, we could talk about this for quite some time. Having said that, I need this is the part where I get to say I thank you a ton for joining us today, Bose, and closing out our, I thank you for your attendance uh, today. I thank you for your insights. I thank you for not only that, but I also thank you for being a friend, Bose. I'm glad of the business that we have. I'm glad of the relationship that we have. And we didn't talk too much on the relationship side, but that is something that's been very important from a Tailwind perspective is obviously this software is a relationship and we're living it out today. So as we close out, Bose, thank you so much for being a part of the live cast today. Any closing thoughts from your side? It's a pleasure to be here and be the last one for the year. And I hope it's a good finish. Yeah. Thank you for giving me some time to talk about my thoughts and share some of my experiences and Excellent. likewise your friendship as well. Excellent. Thank you, Bose. And as we close out today, again, follow the conversation online, engage with us digitally, join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, follow our YouTube channel with the previous 44 episodes. Wish everybody a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening. Take Very care good. and be well. Thank you. Well, Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.